Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. My name's Liam Bishop. I'm a writer from Leeds, and I'm here today with Caroline Clark, poet from Lewis in Sussex. After studying Russian and German at university, Caroline moved to Moscow. Her experiences in Russia inspired her first collection of poetry, Saying Yes in Russian. Since then, she's gone on to translate Russian poets, including a book-length essay in praise of poetry by Olga Sedekova. Russia is also where she met her husband, Andrei, and it's the memories of his childhood in the later years of the Soviet Union which formed the basis of her second collection, Sovetica. Utilising verbatim writing, she recorded, translated and edited Andrei's recollections. Caroline has also utilised some of the principles of verbatim writing for Own Sweet Time, a new book which is going to be published by CB Editions. Here, though, she's utilised verbatim writing for a much different effect. Own Sweet Time is a poetic tender, moving account at the moment of diagnosis of a serious illness. It's amusing on the subjective nature of time and the difficulties of capturing the rhythms of life in this so abruptly and overwhelmingly disturbed. Can we start by talking about Own Sweet Time? I had cancer, breast cancer four years ago. And when I was having the conversation with the oncologist, she asked if I'd like to have it recorded, the conversation recorded. And I said, yes, not thinking whether I'd ever listen to it again, but as soon as, I, as soon as she pressed that record button, I knew that at some stage I would listen to it. And for the first time, I listened to that conversation in January of this year, and I typed it up verbatim. I tried to include everything, everything, all of the interjections, all of the pauses as, as much as possible. I can't remember the exact moment it came to me that I could put with it a document that I had been writing last year called um, Five Questions. And this was a document that I never thought I would ever use in my writing. And it was me going through um, the five things that have challenged me most mentally. And I took fragments from that document of five questions and matched them up like as if you would have footnotes with the transcript. And then my editor, Charles Boyle, suggested splitting the page in two um, vertically. So down the right hand side of the page, we have this transcript of our conversation. And down the left hand side, we have these fragments, each one starting with an ellipsis, and each one um, connected to the main transcript text by a little degree sign, like a kind of footnote sign. And what they share in common with the, the fragment and wherever it's connected is that it starts with the same words. So it might be at or well or husband or anything. Some people like to read the whole diagnosis first, which I would probably do because I think it's gripping in a, in a way that, you know, reading anyone's diagnosis would be. And then they go back and they try and work out what these fragments are doing. Are they saying, are they thoughts that run through my mind? Um, and I think the reader probably completes the text in deciding how to read it. It's it, it's a difficult read for many reasons, isn't it? Because it is in the moment of your diagnosis or very shortly after you've received the diagnosis and the follow-up questions. And it's it's very you are in a very intimate moment in a in a very perhaps in a way that we don't really read about too much, it feels like you really are within the walls of this kind of moment where you're receiving this terrible news. Do you mind if I ask when the diagnosis was, when this transcript's from? March 2018. 
and the fragments were written mostly last summer, but they do come from some of my notebooks from the last five years or so. I've always been a little bit anti-confessional and personal, which sounds funny really, doesn't it? Because this Own Sweet Time is such a personal book. But on the other hand, it's very, um, the diagnosis is, the, the conversation is being led by the doctor, by the oncologist. And the fragments that I choose to put in are very much chosen. And I drop into the sentences mid-flow um, and I don't put anything I don't want to put. So I can kind of conceal story if I need to for parts for reasons of family or whatever. The main impulse in choosing those fragments is the language and the sense of connecting in a very, you know, a very unusual way. Charles called the connections the trigger words. It's a very triggering document. The whole text is triggering, isn't it? I mean. I, I will warn anyone who's been through breast cancer, you know, you probably don't want to read this or, or mm. you might want to wait 10 years until you read it. Um, but the funny thing is I don't think it to be about breast cancer at all. For me, it's about those five questions. There's definitely a, a sense that you've made some choices about what goes in. Uh, it's not, obviously not just a transcript, is it? Even though it is in some way, but... There are some choices of what's going on. And obviously you make the choice that you're going to start this conversation just after it looks like you've received the diagnosis and you go into, you start to talk about family history. So in that choice then, did these five questions that you're framing the other side of the book around, what was the relationship between the two texts? Did, was it this moment that you made you ask these five questions or was this moment of this cancer diagnosis, the experience of cancer. The, I mean, this must obviously be one of the hardest things that you've ever had to go through. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head twice there. One, one with, the, with the word choice, choosing, and the other with saying it's one of the hardest things I've been through because I think an, an interesting way of describing this book is saying that the right-hand column, the transcript of the diagnosis is about the hardest thing I've been through physically. And the left-hand side of the page is about those things I have found hardest mentally. And the word choice is fundamental here. And it makes me think about whether or not, you know, I, I asked this to Marek Kupler, you know, did, has anyone ever said to you, you didn't write this book? You know, is, have I written it? And, and, and you could really fairly ask that question about the diagnosis because it is very, it's absolutely verbatim. But in terms of making choices, I decided how it would look. And I decided to put these two texts together. Or I felt I should put these two texts together. Um, I was drawn to do it. And what came out is something I'm still trying to understand. It's only a few months old. But maybe it's to do with the fact that Maybe it's to do with healing. I don't know. You know, may, maybe I wanted to look at look at this breast cancer diagnosis and what I've been through, and think, okay, maybe my body's okay now. But am I am I mentally okay? What do I need to go through to to get to the next stage of feeling okay? Did it feel like you're in a moment where you didn't have a lot of choice? Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the moment of writing is very much about this feels right. You know, that kind of intuitive sense. And I never, I never imagined or planned this to be like this. 
I just went with it. I went with it. So how then did this all fit together? Why did you decide to, did something get put on hold? Did something get pushed forward? Or did something bring all this back? Like you said, you, you chose to listen to the recording yeah. in January. Why was it that moment that you decided that this mm. needed to be written about or published? Um, I work very intuitively, i.e. I don't have a plan. I have no idea what I'm going to write next. And that's why I write. I don't know. And I write to find out what I want to write and what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'll always work like this, but for me at the moment, that is the whole direction, the whole, the whole pull, the whole pull for me of writing. Yeah. People who've read Servetica will, the, the not similar books, there's a kind of con continuity and that's Andre and obviously yourself as the poet, as the writer. And it feels like, you know, you were beside Andre translating his memories of childhood. And then it feels in a different way that Andre is beside you now as you go through the diagnosis of, of, mm -hmm. of cancer. And he's not, he makes an appearance every now and again in the transcript um, as he receives the news with you. So Sovietica, that was a long, a long love of Andre, my husband's stories that he would tell about growing up in the Soviet Union. And some of them even are cast as poems in my first book that came out 10 years ago. Then yes, in Russian with them, agenda editions. But all of this, now I think about it, wouldn't have happened without that cancer experience because what happened was he came with me to every session of, you know, when you have chemo, you sit there for hours. And in a very strange way, it was very enjoyable because we talked a lot. And that following summer, I started recording him, not during the sessions, but I think it kind of led on from that, talking about his childhood. And I just wanted to record him talking because it occurred to me that not everyone has such instant access to their childhood memories as he does. And something that connects all my three books is a fascination with how people speak and how they say things, because I can't do this at all. I, I just, I love, I love hearing how other people phrase things and I kind of catch it and sometimes recast it. But So I just started typing them up and then um, a local journal to me called Snow Lit Rev said, do you have anything? And I didn't. So I just quickly found three of these memories of Andres that I typed up and reformed them. They're not exactly verbatim. So, I mean, I take what he says, I translate, because he was talking in Russian, I translate it into English, and then I work out how I would like it to look on the page. And I think of them as being like poems, but they could be poem stories. But what they do have in common is, yes, they come from verbatim from the act of speaking, someone else speaking. And yes, they are very personal. Um, and one thing that I thought about verbatim writing in general, starting of course with Svetlana Alexievich who won the Nobel Prize and she wrote Chernobyl Prayer. And then recently I spoke to Marit Kapler who wrote Osibol, which is a lovely book of um, verbatim writing of stories from, what, from people that live in a small town in a village in Sweden. So the thing that, con that connects these and makes them work is the personal. Of course, it's going to be universal because we're all people and we all understand what we're talking about. But I think the person writing it, putting it together, creating the, creating the actual final product has to, has to have a connection somehow to the, to the subject, to the people. So let's just talk then a bit about this idea of verbatim writing, how it relates to 
the book and how it might have been different from Sovetica. And you mentioned the interview with uh, Rowena McDonald, the writer. Um, and you said of writing Sovetica that in this way, the words are not my own, but in another way, they are very much my own. Um, I wondered if you felt this was the same for Own Sweet Time. And maybe you can tell us a bit more about the principles of verbatim writing. I think that we don't really know um, what verbatim writing can be many things. And the degree to which it is absolutely a transcript of what is said is varies. So I think it's quite rare, like in my book, to have an absolutely verbatim, you know, all of the mm -hmm, all of the interjections I try to capture. But you know, some the other two writers I've mentioned, Marit Kapler, Svetlana Aksievich, you know, they they take what's been said, but they cut to the chase. You know, they, they, they take the most burning phrases and use them. And Marit in particular um, structures them on, on the page, like as if they were poems or maybe they are poems, who knows? So I think it's very free form. You can, you can decide what you, want, what, it, what, what you want it to be. But one thing for me, the underlying principle is of permission absolute permission you know if you're using anyone's words or if you are even rephrasing them you know for me I have to with Andre I, I obviously asked his permission and showed him the final text and it was this one the doctor gave me permission to use the text really the principle is it has to speak to the person the writer the person using it you you are obviously you are very much in it but also in a way you're not or will you or it feels like it feels like the the people have very definite roles in this moment you've just got the oncologist yeah. um she's talking about the cycles of the chemotherapy and the different surges and the different drugs and she keeps saying this, this is a lot of information to process and it becomes a bit of a refrain through the book and then we hang off those erms and mm -hmms. and they say a lot about sort of passage of time through this conversation but they also say a lot about the dynamics between you Mm -hmm. Andre, the oncologist. And then across the page, we have a different kind of rhythm, a different kind of time that's being set up. Um, and that does very much feel like those words are, quote unquote, your own. I'm really glad you mentioned it was this idea of time. Obviously, it's called own sweet time, um, which could be read as a noun, you know, as in a kind of um, imperative, own yes. sweet time. Or it could be read as an adjective, your own sweet time. And also the idea of history, like she's taking my history. She's asking me these questions, but also I'm giving my history on the other side of the page, which is very much in my own words. I'm, I'm kind of taking back the power of giving my history in my own words. So I'm not trying to put these two um, kinds of speaking, these two texts directly in conflict. You know, I wouldn't want to say one side is you know, a cold or, you know, whatever way of speaking and the other side is the real way of speaking. But it just shows you how, how much that doesn't go into also a diagnosis. And we all know, you know, as I think one of the um, wonderful um, quotes we got for the back of the book, um, it goes to show how much makes up a person, you know, not just the actual diagnosis. Do you feel like it is a moment that it is meant to, in some way, 
I won't say depersonalize you, but kind of is the kind of language of that situation. Do you think it serves a purpose to kind of put you at a distance from the emotions of it? It's, it's very clinically spoken about um, set it. The oncologist is very much concerned with the, the cycle, the treatment, the cycles. And yeah. the, they say that there's a nurse or this nurse or this nurse will help you deal with this and has got some really good literature. And those kind of things are, are deferred for the next kind of step, which is after this. So I wonder if the, mm. it makes me think of this or the, the kind of reflections are this kind of more emotional component being brought back into, even though we feel the emotion of the moment without a doubt. But feels very much like, you know, there's a checklist. They off, they have to get through this information. They have to impart this information to you during this conversation. Um, it's done wonderfully, you know, I have to say. I thought that this was just a, a brilliant conversation the way it was run, but you just get the sense that this is how it's done. There isn't any, uh, there isn't any room for maneuver and for, for me to go off, you know, and obviously it's about the body, isn't it? That's, they're trying to cure the body. That's what they, that's what it's all aimed at. So yeah, you do get that sense. But what else could they do on the other hand? <laughs> No, absolutely. Um, and but we, which is to say, you get the set. You know, the oncologist comes across as a very compassionate individual at the same time. Mm. Uh, it's just a very fascinating insight into this this moment. I think. Yeah, I mean, um, I was sitting there thinking, feeling a bit sorry for her, how often she has to do this, and how hard it is to summon that sense of compassion, which I entirely got. You know, I did feel for her as well. I'm thinking. You know, you have to go through this. How often? I, I can't imagine it ever gets any any easier or even for the doctor. Do you know what I mean? It, it must it, it can't. You know, that moment when I when I mentioned that I have two children and this is my mm. whole my my main concern in the whole conversation is what do I tell them? What do I tell them? Because until then I hadn't, until then I'd kind of hadn't really been sure if it was that serious, you know, you know, you're kind of not sure. So that question. It's, I mean, it's so hard, isn't it? What do you tell them? And I think, I think there must be a lot of work that goes into trying to help parents know what to say. But I think in each case, it's, each case is different. You know your own children, you know how to deal with it. But, so you don't really get much talk, you don't, you don't really have, there's no kind of, I don't know, room on your forms or whatever you have to fill out about how the, you know, how the patient will then deal with this information that's happening to them or how they will then go and you know, necessarily talk to their children. It's, it's not really something formal, is it? It's something that we deal with personally, I guess. It's not something you can formalize. It's interesting because these two um, doctor writers that have been so kind to give me these quotes at the back, uh, Sam Gugliani and Gavin Francis, are, come from the other side, they're doctors and, and, or, and Sam is an oncologist who write, you know, very humanely and they, they look at the whole person, you know, and they try, why, why don't we do that more? You know, where this, I mean, you know, for example, categorizing this book, what is it? Nonfiction, you know, but it has elements of poetry to it, it has elements of reportage or, or verbatim writing to it. And it can speak to so many different kinds of people. And there's a, there's a section, there's a, one of your reflections that, that talks about this, doesn't it, about, is this autofiction? Is this um... an essay? I think I say, what is this? Yeah, or autofiction. 
Yes, you are constantly wondering, what is it I'm doing? Especially when you write in, in this kind of intuitive manner, you have to really let yourself not worry about what it is. Yeah, questions I'll never get any further with. The thing that I do, autofiction, question mark, essay of the self. I need to do this in fits and starts, straight, straight to the desk after drop-off. I used to get up in the silence of 5 a.m., write, then go back to bed. And the move, I think the movement in the past sort of 10 years or so, this weird thing that we can't, I don't think it's a weird thing that we can't categorize. It's a weird desire to categorize right. every aspect <laughs> of life and literature. Yeah. But I think it all fits into, I think what are the kind of, it all comes to some of the great work in this field is about the body. It's about the experiences in the body, whether it is something, even if it's, even if it's not about something as, you know, as kind of um, serious as cancer, I think just people writing about embodied experiences is where this work, um, all this work kind of fits. And I don't think it has necessarily found um, a form and that's what makes it so interesting why the kind of auto fiction movement and all that and all that business yeah i mean i think i think at the, the, the heart of all of that that writing that we don't really know quite how to categorize is this absolute urge need impulse to do it and not worry about what it is and also to you know a freedom to 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 allow yourself to do it and then, thank God, there are small presses out there like CB Editions who don't care either what it is and where it will fit on a bookshelf if it ever is placed in a bookshop. You know, it's just, it, it's an act of um, braveness in a way, you know. It, when you do something, you don't quite know what it is. Not, yeah, it's really important just not to worry about these labels. At last, we'll have oxide daisies and peonies, foxgloves and hopefully the sweet pea will be stronger. The beech leaves are still soft, but only a few days more and they'll be tougher, adult, young and tender, adult and tougher. But the wounds from when you were young weaken you as an adult. Examine, notice, consider these weaknesses, fault lines, questions. Are you still ours, mummy? she asks. In the second cycle, it's clear I'm not going to have an easy time of it. I've been unable to get out of bed for a week. It's that personal pronoun, ours, that gets me. Still so little, she can't speak properly, not big enough to know what she wants to say, to get all the information. Have I become someone else to them? Good at my desk, on the front doorstep, with a sketchbook. When the house is empty, I can have a room of my own. It's not all that when you have children under five. Then they start to leave you alone more. You can escape. When I was pregnant with my eldest daughter in Canada, a Canadian poet and editor suggested I read a novel about a female poet who couldn't cope with having a child and left. I think perhaps he was trying to warn me, but he didn't know you can't do this. Everyone's experience is their very own to unravel in their own sweet time. I feel like this book is about the rhythms and the cycles of life. Um, we see you discussing the cycles of treatment and the chemotherapy. Uh, there are quantifications of side effects of, of the treatment. And then obviously we're seeing the rhythm of your life suddenly change as you must try and make adjustments. You ask things about, you know, you realize that your writing is going to become 
impacted and you kind of have to you sort of ask yourself am i you know the kind of underlying question is am i a writer now can i be a writer as well and as a poet you're obviously are used to the rhythms of um language and fitting language into verse um i just wondered if you could speak a little bit more about depending what day you ask me what this book is about one of those days i might say it's about how hard it is to have children and be a writer because a lot of those fragments are not about the chemo treatment and and it's about they're written a bit before they're reflecting on the years before when i had when when my two girls well they still are quite young but you know that age when they won't leave you alone you know and it's okay to say that <laughs> and you're desperate to be free and you're running around the house just looking for a free five minutes and that you know no one can prepare you for that and and it's different for everyone not everyone will find it as hard as I did and I, I did find it very hard my whole life was just you know had to change and I think in one of the fragments I say I have to change I, it's all about understanding if you know one of the themes is is putting how hard it was to put one of my daughters to bed just absolute agonies until I realized it wasn't her her problem it was my problem you know what I was expecting so constantly this is about self kind of change accepting that the rhythms of your life are changed and they have to change and they're always going to change and just being able to go with that or learning how to do it I, I, had, I had to do a lot of reassessment of how I expected day a day what a day to look like you know then when they start school and you you pick them up at 3 8 3 p.m by 2 p.m that's it you know so so some men do know this they do pick up but mostly still at that school wall it's it's women picking up their kids and we all look at each other you know and say oh how much did you get done you know it's just it's it's completely a shock to the system how how you're understanding of the rhythms and time changes and it was very hard but I'm very glad that I didn't lose this impulse to write I, I, I got through I feel like I'm on the other side now that I'm going to I think this book is me saying okay I am a writer <laughs> I've got through all that now I'm a writer so what am I going to do next <laughs> I'm taking back my own sweet time <laughs> Or yeah, at least a little bit. <laughs> well, because you were, I mean, you, your children were three and seven. So I, I guess, I mean, I don't know because I've not got kids, but you, you, your kids are growing up at that stage, so aren't they? You're not, um, I, don't, I mean, I don't think you have a complete parenthood, do you? But you're always kind of learning. But You have your first child, and especially I was on my own, in, me and my, hus my husband and I were on our own in Montreal. We had no family around us when our first one was born. So we really were, we had no idea. And I still have no idea. And I think, I think that's the whole, one of those um, misunderstandings is that you suddenly know how to do it. You never know how to do it. And they, ch and they change. So part of this book, Own Sweet Time, is about how I, all these things happening here meant that I change or I die. Literally, I had to adjust. I had to adjust. And not just to cancer and the, and the chemo. But to what I think I say something like um, a new choreography is being asked of me, required. I, 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 only, I only understood that maybe a little bit too late. I couldn't just plow on in my own, my old pre-children, get up at 5 a.m., write something, 
go back to bed if I felt tired <laughs> way, you know. And I, I, I did, it did take me perhaps a strangely long time to realize that I needed to change and I still need to change. The choreography is a, is a, is a fantastic word for it because I think it relates to this idea of rhythms and movement and all these kind of, again, a sense now of just your children were changing. They're probably changing quite a lot at that, that young age. And you were obviously changing and, and we all change as we go through life, obviously. But, but then this, this diagnosis was asking, was kind of, you know, confronting you with... More required changes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and quite drastically to sort of, as you said, save you and keep you, keep you alive. Um, yeah, and it was harder for the seven-year-old. The three-year-old was more, you know, she, she wasn't not as aware, you know, or under, didn't understand as much what was happening. And the seven-year-old was very much, um, are you going to die? Am I going to die? Um, funnily enough, it did make me laugh. She was more worried oh, for herself when, we, when she first found out that she was going to get this thing straight away and dies. How, how, um... Very sweetly, you know, that's what children are like. I mean, I have this, um, one of the fragments. Are you still ours, mummy? She asks. In the second cycle, it's clear I'm not going to have an easy time of it. I've been unable to get out of bed for a week. It's that personal pronoun, ours, that gets me. Still so little she can't speak properly, but big enough to know what she wants to say, to get all the information. Have I become someone else to them? She was only three and for a couple of weeks, I could not get out of bed. And, you know, she was just coming up and shaking my arm to see if I was still there. It was just absolutely massive changes. Um, and very interesting, I can say now, thankfully. Yeah, in the moment, I imagine um, it wasn't, the word probably wasn't interesting that was coming to you to your mind but well it was interesting enough for me to actually write that down that she said that. right and I made a note of her saying that because it, it struck me so so it was so sweet but also so you know so tragic are you still ours mommy yeah yeah, yeah. I think I think all, all parents do that don't they they write down things that strike them so Caroline just one final thing to talk about and is it's the cover of the book um I'm just going to let you talk about it because uh, it's obviously quite a personal thing for you. The front cover is a sketch, to my surprise, that I did um, of a tree. Um, I'm, I, I don't think of myself as an artist at all, but I do like to sketch trees in my notebook when no writing is happening. And I sketched this tree in 2016, uh, which was two years before the diagnosis. And to me, it immediately jumped out at me when I was looking through my old notebooks, this is a tr woman with a mastectomy. That's what it looked like. And I'm really amazed and pleased that it is the front cover. The fact that it was done two years before maybe tells me something about what the body knows before the mind does. It just, it just struck me. It just struck me. So I'm very glad that it's on the front cover. Caroline Clark. Thank you so much for joining me today to speak about Own Sweet Time. Thank you so much for um, speaking with me. As far as I know, I'm cancer-free. You know, that's what they say. I'm living as if I am cancer-free. So onwards. Great. great. Well, we're, great. We're glad to hear it, uh, obviously. And and yeah, thanks. Thanks ever so much for just for just giving this book to us to, to read, talking about it, coming along and just being so um, 
so candid and open about it. Um, it's a beautiful book and it's out in September. Um, so go out and buy it. Um, but for now, thank you very much. Thank you, Liam. Thanks so much for Caroline for joining me for the Rippling Pages podcast. And of course, my thanks go out to you as well for listening. Own Sweet Time is published by CB Editions and it's going to be out in September. If you've enjoyed the episode, leave a nice little five-star review on your favourite podcast provider. Join me next time when I'm going to be joined by Nicholas Royal.